We're glad that you're here tonight, and we invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians 2. Sometimes people characterize the epistle to Paul as us hearing one side of a phone conversation or reading one side of an email and trying to determine on the basis of that. You turn on. No, I don't. Thank you. I had it on my head this time, though. Um, and trying to determine from that uh, where, what is going on on the other end. I, I want to tell you, there aren't many epistles where that's more difficult a process to figure out what Paul is dealing with, what he is refuting, than in Colossians, and particularly Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15, this this paragraph that we're going to read. Now, I think we'll see in some of these things something we can put our finger on, but, but, but it was complex what he's dealing with. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule. And all authority and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled, the having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In verse 9, the word fullness, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. There is a form of that word used in verse 10 which says in him you have been made complete. They're a verb but the verb made complete is connected to the word for fullness. In Christ the fullness, the completeness of God dwells in bodily form and in him you are made complete. You are made full. Christ fills you up, whatever the philosophy that was that was challenging them. 
Their answer was Christ. They don't need to be moved by all of those traditions, by all of those principles of the world, but they need to be realizing how complete they are in Christ, who is the head of all rule and all authority. And he's going to particularly relate this to the subject of baptism in verses 11 through 13. Now verses 11 through 13 are deep. They are profound. But hopefully we can enter into that depth just a little bit in the things that we say. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision that was made without hands. Now one of the things that tells me right off the bat is whatever this was, this tradition that they're dealing with, this philosophy, it seems to have contained Jewish elements which were insisting upon circumcision, like we see in the book of Galatians, for example. Because he is emphasizing that in Christ, you have experienced a superior circumcision. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 11, Paul said, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, you Gentiles... You who were uncircumcised in the flesh, and you have been called uncircumcised by those who simply know of a fleshly circumcision. But here in Colossians 2.12, Paul is talking about a deeper circumcision. It says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, what is that circumcision? When they experience baptism, it seems clearly to me. In the context, it says, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, in the Bible, often it is idols that are made with man's hands. But things that are made without hands are done by God. It is not man's work. It is God's work. For example, in that great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that reached up to heaven with the head of gold and with the feet of iron and, and, and mixed with clay. You remember how there was a stone cut without hands that struck down the statue and, and scattered it to the wind and yet that stone grew up into a great mountain. It was a stone cut out without hands. It was the work of God. Jesus was accused of saying that he's going to build a temple made without hands in Mark 14 in verse 58. The Bible tells us about a home prepared, a body prepared that has been made without hands and a tabernacle that we can enter that was made without hands. But here in this passage, you have been circumcised in a circumcision made without hands. The circumcision of Christ. Now, as you look at things on verse 11, if you read different commentaries and try to examine the meaning, 
Some think this is a circumcision that Christ experienced by his death on the cross that he's providing forgiveness, which we know is certainly true. But is that the idea? Is it the circumcision Christ experiences that is the circumcision of Christ or circumcision that he gives? It seems to me it's more likely here that this is a circumcision done by Christ. When we are buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, same kind of language as Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins and here amplified as the uncircumcision of your flesh God has made you alive now here Paul is writing to Christians he is writing to Christians about baptism to emphasize you are complete in Christ you are full in Christ you don't need to go through the physical circumcision that some are demanding of you. For this has met your spiritual needs. And he makes three points, or at least we want to divide it into three points to see about baptism that I think are all very significant. First of all, baptism is intimately connected with Christ. In this whole passage of Scripture, it is intimately connected with Christ. In verse 11, and in Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the operation of God, the working of God. In verse 13, made alive together with him. All of those phrases, all of those expressions connect baptism to Jesus Christ and to what he does. And this shouldn't surprise us. For when Jesus was giving his great commission and told his disciples to go preach to all nations, he included in that commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and commanding them to observe all things. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus told his disciples, you go out, you preach the message, you spread the news, you make disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in his baptism is connected, not only connected to the person of Christ, not only in the Gospels, but also in the book of Acts. In Acts 8 and verse 5, the Bible tells us that Philip comes to the city of Samaria and preaches Christ to the people. But in preaching Christ, the text tells us in verses 12 and 13 
that men and women were baptized, included among them Simon the sorcerer. A passage that is often used in this life is Acts 8, verses 35-38. It is a story that you're familiar with. As the Bible tells us about the eunuch riding along the road, the deserted road from, from, uh, in uh, Gaza. And the Bible tells us that Philip was told, go and join yourself to this chariot. And as Philip runs to this chariot, he hears Isaiah reading from Isaiah 53. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip. He begged Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And he was reading the scripture. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? And he says, tell me, who does he talk about? Of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture he preached Jesus to him. Now, what does he talk about? No doubt he is talking one about the death of Jesus on the cross as we emphasize this morning. I know that from the passage in Isaiah that was read. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. So he's preaching to him about the death of Christ. But as they drive along in that chariot, or ride along in that chariot, he no doubt mentions something about the subject of baptism. Because it's the eunuch who brings it up. So when Philip preached about Jesus, he preached about what Jesus said on this subject. And he preached about baptism as connected to the person of Christ. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And the Bible tells us he ordered the chariot to stop and he baptized him. The Bible tells us in Acts 10 that Cornelius and his house are commanded to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Saul is baptized, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is presented in Colossians 2 and presented throughout the New Testament as being thoroughly Christ-centered. It flows, it gets its meaning out of Him, who He is and what He did. And in Him we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And not only that, but the text tells us that baptism emphasizes the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at that in this context. In Colossians chapter 2, having been buried with him in baptism, 
buried with him in baptism. In baptism, we are imitating the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. You see that both in this passage in Colossians 2.12 and in Romans 6 in verses 1 through 11. Look over to Romans 6. Both of these passages talk about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And these are emphasized and imitated in our baptism. Let's start at verse 2. Let's start at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, when we were buried with him through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Romans 6 is going to repeatedly use words about death and use words about resurrection. As we state, when we come to Jesus... And we die to the love and a practice of sin. As we are buried with him in baptism. As we are raised to walk in, as new creatures united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We are calling attention to, we are emphasizing, we are highlighting the saving power of Christ. His death and his resurrection. This morning, we talked about how the cross is central to the message of the Bible. It is the focal point of human history. It is central to the message of the Bible. We could have added in Old Testament and New, but we're particularly looking at how it is the fulfillment of the New Testament. And it is fascinating how in the epistle, most everything is connected in some shape, form, or fashion to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And right here in Colossians 2 and Romans 6, we see that with baptism. It is connected, it flows from its power, its significance, it, its meaning flows out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Instead of nullifying the importance of those things, it calls attention to the importance. It highlights the importance 
of the death and resurrection. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We, we alluded to this this morning in Ephesians 5 verse 25 because just as everything else flows out of the cross, when God is telling husbands and wives how to treat each other, he also ties this back to the cross. And he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word to present that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that we would be holy and blameless again that passage ties our forgiveness, our salvation, our being cleansed from every spot and stain. It ties it to the death of Christ in verse 25. But God, God who loved us and Christ who loved us and gave himself for us also sanctifies us by the washing of water. By the word. A reference to baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21. Again the subject is tied. The subject of baptism is tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Corresponding to that. Baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ everything after the cross is tied to the cross and flows out of the cross. And here, baptism and its power, its efficiency, is tied to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, what passage was the eunuch reading when he was riding along in a chariot? He was reading, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He's, he's reading about the death of Christ which Philip no doubt explained to him. And it's tied to this particular subject of baptism. But a final point. Look at the text in verse 12. The Bible says, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you see that baptism 
is described as God's working, not ours. Through faith in the working of God, we exercise faith in His work, in what He has done and is doing in circumcising us in baptism, in removing our transgressions and forgiving our sins. After Paul argues in Galatians 3 that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law, which side is baptism on in that discussion? For you're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Now, now this is emphasized in other ways in this particular passage. I mean, verse 12 is strong enough. Verse 12 is strong enough that we exercise faith in God's work, in the God who raises the dead. But also consider that phrase in verse 11, that in Christ we are circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. If we're talking about something not made with hands, it is not something that man can do. When we are cleansed from sins, when we are circumcised in baptism, it is not something that the forgiveness that comes is not something that we accomplish, that we do. It is something that He does. It is a circumcision made without hands. Now, I am not always good at explaining this, but I want to try my hand at this. The difference between passive verbs and active verbs. Okay. Some of you shaking your head, listening with excitement, don't expect much insight, okay? But passive verbs is when a person is acted upon. Active verbs is when the person is acting. Now, I know some of you have also looked at the language, the original language some, and you check this out. And let me encourage you all to check this out to the limits of your ability. When Colossians 1, Colossians 2, verse 11 to 13, speaks of what we do in this subject of baptism, it uses verbs and participles in passive voice. Now, now what do I mean by that? In verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. You were circumcised. A passive second person plural verb. You were circumcised. In verse 12, having been buried. That's an active, uh, excuse me, a passive participle. Having been buried. And then in verse in verse 12, you were raised up. That is a passive verb. Now, you can tell that in the New American Standard, which the New American Standard does a particularly good job most of the time with verb tenses. 
You can tell that even in that translation. You were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. And you were also raised. The verbs and the participles that refer to man's action are passive. Man is acted upon. But the verbs and participles that refer to God's actions are active. For example, in verse 12, we exercise faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Who raised him from the dead. That is what God does. We, when we're baptized, are exercising our faith in God and God's work. The God who raised Jesus from the dead can raise up our bodies, can raise us up from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life and make us a new creature. In verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. God is the subject of that verb. That is an active verb. He made us alive. He made us alive, having forgiven all our trespasses, which is a, a middle participle. But the point is, in baptism, it is God who is working. It is God who is acting. It is God who is making us alive. It is God who is bringing about this new creature that we come become. And we exercise faith, faith, trust, commitment in this God. This God who has shown the power of his works in the resurrection of Jesus. In raising him from the dead, we exercise faith in his work. For these Colossians who are being encouraged to be circumcised or to go through other rituals to complete what was lacking in their faith, Paul says, you are complete in Christ. And baptism is a point where we were circumcised, where we were buried and raised to new life with him, where our transgressions in the uncircumcision of our flesh was removed, where we were made alive and all our transgressions were forgiven. This is intimately connected with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so it doesn't have any power nor significance unless you believe that Jesus died and rose again. It derives its significance, its power from what God has done in raising Christ from the dead. But if you believe that and want to exercise faith in his work, 
in what He does, then there is forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of that burden of death that we talked about this morning in Him as we stand and sing.